see you. And I understand Kevin is away with death in his family, so we hold him in our thoughts and prayers in this time of loss and, and grief. Um, before we start looking at the text this morning, I wanted to ask you if there's anything that sort of jumped out at you in your own reading of this gospel that stuck with you and you'd like to share with us. And it's okay if you haven't. I mean, it may take a while for that to occur. But um, I'd like to have your input in this process. And, what's, how, and one way to put that is if you don't have a specific passage or, or some um, response that it has elicited in you, how are you beginning to feel in response to encountering this gospel? Is it doing anything with you? Anybody want to be the first? To There are many surprises in this gospel, and that is not one of the least of them. We will look at that passage um, more closely. Um, but that's um, something, Bert, what you just said is, is worth pondering. What may happen as a consequence of encountering Jesus in your own life, in the life of the church, and even more astoundingly in the life of the world itself. This gospel is full of surprises. Um, you've just named one of them. What else? Yes, that's one of the. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that hasn't changed, you said, Gary. Even some of them are instructed, as we'll see, not to talk about him. But this business of ignoring him, it'd be interesting to look more closely as we go through this, and you might want to make a note of this. Which ones are ignoring him? And which ones are responding to him and taking him seriously Are there any trends? Can you see any trends? I'll leave that question with you. Um, the larger question, you know, here we can talk about this, and we do, on the level of first century text. We have it in front of us. What's going on in the dialogue between Jesus and the disciples or the others he encounters? It's a little more difficult to then move to the second level and ask the question, what is the implication here for the church at the time Mark is writing, late toward the latter part of the first century? How is the gospel addressing something they are? Because we don't know exactly what they were struggling with, but we get a sense of it in this gospel. 
We can begin to wonder about that. So, what about the question of ignoring him? Post-apostolic age. What about in our time? Put it another way. How authoritative are the words, the teachings of Jesus for you? To what extent are they authoritative? What do they require of you? Are they possibly such, believe me, I'm asking myself that same question all the time, not just for you. Are the requirements of discipleship such that indeed we not only choose to ignore them, but we may choose to remain silent about them? This gospel will put us to that test. So let's launch into it this morning and look at a couple of passages. And by the way, we will not look, we will not study this whole gospel in six weeks. Not if we're going to delve into it. But we can get a sense for it. And then I hope you will on your own begin to be more curious and spend your own time with it. Um, Let's just look at the sequence of events in the first chapter. We have the announcement that Jesus has come onto the scene after John the Baptist. He comes into Nazareth of Galilee. We're in the ninth verse of the first chapter. He's baptized by John in the Jordan River. This is a significant event. Why is it significant? What are some possible reasons? About significance for Jesus being baptized. Let me rephrase that. How is your baptism significant for you? Or is it? It marks you for God. Is it a demarcation point? Is it a turning point? Or is it one of those things we have forgotten? And that has been relegated to that which is of little importance. Mark sets this forth at the beginning of this gospel. It's as if he's saying, take notice. Now bear in mind that Christians in the first century are being baptized in his name. It's as a way of Mark saying, this is not only important for Jesus, this is important for us in the community of his followers. And when he came up out of the water, the, ne- the word you'll see many times in this gospel, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, thou art my beloved son, with thee I am well pleased. Now this is a great drama. But let's think of it for a moment in terms of Jesus' own self-consciousness. And at whatever point in his early adult life, he begins to think seriously about God's claim upon him. How can that be expressed? It can really only be expressed in one of several ways. By virtue of what you do as a consequence of that claim. And then in some metaphorical sense, the only way you can really talk about it graphically is to to give it a picture of some kind. 
I mean, how do you describe this sudden awareness that, you're, that God's claim is upon you? The dove descending. I mean, if you take this literally, you'll probably miss 90% of what this is about. It's not about doves descending. I mean, you know, you know why? Because doves can descend every day, and we think nothing of it. The question is, what has already happened inside of him so that the metaphor then becomes an extension of the experience is by way of saying something significant has transformed his own self-consciousness and made a claim upon him and nothing will be the same ever again. A voice from heaven, thou art my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It is as though like all the prophets had to come to a point of realization that God had called them to some specific self-awareness of their, of their identity, of their mission, of their role, but also that what they are about has more to do with what God is doing in the world than it does with what we are doing. Now just for a, an instant, Consider the fact that in this gospel, Jesus never applies that term to himself. He does not identify himself as the Son of God. That's not true in the other gospels. In this one it is. What is that about? I'll leave the question because it'll hover as we proceed. But in contrast to that, what he does is he identifies himself not as the Son of God. Others do that. He identifies himself. You know what it is, the term he uses for himself? Have you seen it yet? Son of man. Which comes out of the Ezekiel, Daniel, Enoch tradition in the Old Testament as a kind of designation of the representative figure for all humanity. And it has various associations and usages, but, but here there is something, in the Gospel of Mark, there's something about it that entices us to stop thinking in over-glorified terms, in triumphalistic terms, about Godship and to think in terms more of our humanity and his humanity. What does it mean to be the beloved son? Jesus translates that to mean the son of man and we'll see how he means the son of man before we get finished with this. Okay, so the spirit immediately drives him into the wilderness. Now the wilderness is a motif that now, once you have heard this statement, hangs over the rest of this gospel. It is a backdrop against which we must contemplate everything that transpires from this point on. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. Not, what does that bring to mind? Israel, Israel in the wilderness, 40 years. Symbolic. Not a question of whether it was 49, 39, 40, 40. That's not the point. It's a link to what God's people have been through and continue to go through, living in the wilderness. Now, what is the wilderness in your, in your mind? What do you think of when you think of wilderness? Just a couple of terms. No shelter? No shelter? Hmm? Forest. Forest? 
No one to talk to. <laughs> Dark night of the soul. Wild beasts. Harsh terrain. Beautiful. Mm. That's a new. That's a new angle. <laughs> Going inside himself. What do you worry about the most when you're in the wilderness? Survival. Will I survive? And what, Matthew goes in much more depth about this, but what are the temptations that we all face when we are confronted with the immediacy of the question of our survival? Does that not change the way we see things and the way we operate? This business of temptation has to do with our whole being being put to the test. Everything we are, everything we have come to take for granted. Everything we have cherished and lived for, everything to which we have devoted our hearts. I've asked you two weeks now, is there anything in your life that you will not give up? That you hold on to I can name a number of things. <laughs> Somebody mentioned the television. I suspect it'd be one of the last things we'd give up because it's a link, isn't it, to the outer world. It's also a means of distraction, <laughs> among other things. But now let's come to the text. John is arrested. By the way, but before we come to that, in the wilderness, the struggle, the struggle is represented by Satan on the one hand, the angels on the other. Metaphors for what we all struggle with every day if we're truthful about it. And it's interesting to me that in this little passage, it, it says the angels are ministering to Jesus. He's not ministering to them. They are ministering to him. John, and then suddenly John is arrested. And we're going to, you know, this is how this book goes. You're, you're in one scene and quickly you're in another and the drama begins to mount uh, and when the word, as I said last week, is, is uh, paradothenai in the Greek, it means to be delivered up. It's the same word that is used of Jesus when he's delivered up to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. Now, do you not think at this point already, we're hardly into the story, the drama has suddenly ratcheted up and magnified to a whole new level of tension. John, with whom Jesus had been associated in the wilderness, had been one of John's disciples, but who had had differences with John. John had probably come out of the community of the Essenes. We'll say, not going to get into that today, but it's a, it was one of those um, cultic movements within Judaism, in the best sense of cultic. It had removed itself from the center of Judaism in order to look seriously at the question of real purification and transformation and reformation, as well as renewal. And that's by way of generalization. But there were things that happened in that time with Jesus as a disciple of John that caused him to, to part with John eventually. And no sooner had that happened, Jesus forms his own community of disciples, than John is beheaded. 
How do you think the first disciples felt the day they got that news? How did Jesus feel? Jesus had been very close to John. Remember, John had baptized Jesus. How do you think Jesus felt that day when he got the news that John had been beheaded? Do you think he thought that that had any implication for himself? Yes. Have you ever had the experience in your life of someone significant dying? Someone had a mentoring relationship to you and whom you looked up, in a sense, that person helped you to become who you are, and then suddenly that person is gone. Then how does it leave you? I had had several mentors in my life, important ones. One of them was an Englishman who, um, by the name of Eddie Lane, who was a Presbyterian minister in the, then the Presbyterian Church of England. He happened to be a guest in our home when I was in high school. He was on a preaching tour in this country, and we were invited to be his hosts, and he and his daughter came. Well, it was the beginning of a long relationship until his death. I visited over there, I got to know him well. We, I have reams of correspondence still with him. He was, for me, what Paul was to Timothy. And I remember my last visit with him, not knowing it was going to be my last visit. He literally, figuratively, laid his mantle on me. He took his stole, his black stole, and he placed it around my neck. And in effect, he said, you will carry on when I'm gone. And in a way, in a way, he ordained me. He died in 1973 in my first pastorate. It was a huge blow to me. I felt like that connection had been ripped apart, and now I was on my own. It's like a friend of mine said when his father died, and he was sitting out on a wall outside the hospital just after the death, he said it felt like that the roof had been raised off the house and there was nothing between him and the infinite sky. I can imagine it felt something like that when John the Baptist was beheaded and Jesus got the news. Now the mantle is laid on him. And he says which is the logical sequence. Next, the time is fulfilled. It's here. It's now. The kingdom of God is present. It is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he begins his preaching, teaching, healing ministry from that point on. He passes along by the Sea of Galilee. That's the next scene. He runs into Simon and Andrew, and they're casting their nets. They were fishermen. Jesus said, we don't know anything about them at this point. That's all we know. He says to them, out of the blue, follow me, literally translated, come after me. And I will make you fishers of people. What? And let's stop for a minute and ponder how Simon and Andrew might have. I mean, this is their first, we presumably, maybe it wasn't. 
But in this moment, it might as well be the first encounter because of what he's asking of them. What's going through their mind? Is this guy nuts? What is he saying? What is, what's this metaphor about fishing for people? What is he asking of them? And you would think there might be a little dialogue in the text about what's going on in their minds and maybe an exchange between them and Jesus as to kind of work this out so they can get a handle on it and therefore maybe they'll have a better notion of what they are getting themselves into. But none of that is in the text. What happens is he says to them, come after me, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, there's that word again, they left their nets and followed him. Wow. Now I just, I wonder, if you and I had been there, Could we have done that? What are, they, what are they leaving when they leave their nets? Their livelihood. Their heritage. Their home. Everything that's familiar. Rather striking, isn't it? How likely is it if someone walked up to you, a stranger, let's say you're downtown Lynchburg at the market one Saturday morning, and says, give up your livelihood and follow me, how likely is it you will go? What are the odds? Not good. <laughs> First thing that comes to my mind is this guy's crazy. And I will treat him as such. I will totally ignore him. <laughs> now, I suspect there was more to the conversation, but it is not mentioned here. And what Mark wants us to see, and this is where we, 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 we'll see later in the gospel that there, there's all kind of contrasts. The disciples pick up their, their, gather themselves up and go. They leave behind their occupations, their families, their, all their human treasures, whatever meager ones they were, and they follow this man, Jesus of Nazareth. It must have been very compelling for him to have been able to persuade them to do that to start with. But I want you to notice something. By the end of this gospel, every single one of them does what? Leave? Meaning? abandon him. They stop following. They no longer come after him. They give up. They go back to their nets. Keep that in mind as we proceed. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These four characters, by the way, are the main antagonists in this gospel. Not protagonists, antagonists. We'll see in chapters 8, 9, and 10 how that becomes so. Peter being central to the whole drama. They were in their boats mending their nets. Immediately he calls them. They leave their father Zebedee in the boat. Wow. With the hired servants. And they follow him. I mean, just picture that for a minute. How easy was it for you to leave your parents in any sense of the word? Oh, maybe it's easier for some of us than others, depending on what happened in childhood. But, <laughs> but even so, do we walk away that easily, that quickly? 
And what's going to happen to them? That's one of the questions I have to the text. What about the father Zebedee and the servants in the boat? What happened to them? They were probably depending on the sons for their livelihood to make this business work. And now they're gone. He did say something in another context about leaving your family. Well, we'll come back to that if you're going to follow him. They're into Capernaum now, his hometown. And immediately, there's that word again, on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue, he starts teaching. Now, this is an audacious thing to do. There's no suggestion here that he was invited, though he may have been. He just enters and starts teaching. And they are astonished. Because he teaches as one who has authority and not as the scribes will. The scribes were constantly attending to the, <laughs> the Hebrew scriptures, you know, nitpicking at the text, looking for the here, here, and yonder for all means of justification for the keeping of, of the laws of the Torah in all their manifestations. They were the guides of the time. They were the preachers. The, they had the equivalent job that I have and others like me in the church, which sets me back a few feet when I realize that he is saying here that unlike the scribes, um, Jesus teaches with authority. And where does the authority come from? We've already been told that. Where does it come from? From God. Yeah. And interestingly enough, that is going to mean very quickly that Jesus now has the authority in his own mind to take issue with some of the sacred traditions, scriptural traditions of Israel. He sets himself, indeed, in many respects, above them. And there begins another um, dramatic interlude in which suddenly we are wondering now uh, just what might happen to him as a consequence of this. He encounters uh, a man with an unclean spirit. And oddly enough, he, the unclean spirit recognizes Jesus. He recognizes him. And asks the question, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. We could spend a week on this passage, but I want to ask you, uh, think about it a minute. What, what implication does this have for? For the... And we have an unclean spirit that's attracted to him. We know that he, we can see that he's unclean in this person's life. How much control do you and I have over the demonic forces in the world? How about just the demonic forces in your own life? How much control do we have over that? Not very much. What's interesting about this passage, among other things, is that this demon recognizes Jesus. Jesus. 
I think it's true to say that the manifestations of evil, the personifications of evil, are very wary of being exposed for who they are. There's a very thin veil between the darkness and the light. And when we are residing in the darkness, we either yearn for the light, if it's the dark night of the soul, or we fear exposure that our, the inner demons and the outer demons will come to light. We're talking about a cosmic reality here, not just the demon and this. This is a man who symbolizes this cosmic struggle. Remember, started in the wilderness? Devil, Satan on one hand, the angels ministering on the other. Now here is a person who is caught up in, in the struggle between good and evil and has become a symbol of the demonic. And his first question to Jesus is, what do you have to do with us? Have you come, what's the question? How does it read in your text? Sounds like it, doesn't it? Lest what happen? Yes. Remember the context in which this gospel was being written? The larger social political context of Rome? One of the greatest fears that Caesar has is that his evil ways will be exposed. Now Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit and says, be silent, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulses in him, cries out with a loud voice, and came out. By the way, the expulsion, the exorcism of evil is not an easy affair. It is a convulsive encounter. Both. Everything that Mark writes has overarching symbolic value. That is to say, as an analogy, the church hearing this word will begin to draw the, the connections between what is said in the text and what is happening in the church and in the surrounding world, symbolically. That is, the gospel becomes a symbol for what is to address what is currently going on in the context in which we live. So that the unclean spirit is not simply an unclean spirit. It is an unclean spirit. Literally, it is an unclean spirit. It resides in this particular person, whoever he was. 
But that spirit travels. That spirit will show up elsewhere in this gospel and, of course, in our lives. Jesus rebukes. It's not the first rebuke. You will see him rebuke Peter later. A different kind of unclean spirit will emerge in Peter with respect to how Jesus has defined himself as the suffering servant. But this is the first place in the gospel where someone recognizes him for who he is. And Jesus tells um, this unclean spirit, he rebukes the unclean spirit, and the man convulses him out. And then immediately there is a reaction to what has happened. By what authority does he command even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. This will be in contrast to what the disciples will do later when they don't obey him. And so, <clears throat> then we launch to the word again. Immediately he leaves the synagogue. He enters the house of Simon and Andrew, uh, James and John, and Simon's mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever, and immediately... They tell him about her, and he comes and he takes her by the hand. What are the next words in your text? Okay. How is it literally translated in the next text, in the next phrase? He, this is um, verse 31, chapter 1. He comes, he takes her by the hand. And what? Yeah. And it might have a different translation. Lifted her up. You ask about symbolism? Now take that literally. Here, I won't lift you up, but let me give you my hand as though I were. Okay. And help you get up. Mm -hmm. That's a literal act of lifting. But what's the symbolic value here? that's going to play out through this and by the end of the gospel become very clear. What has he just done for this woman? He's healed her. Do you have any other associations with the word lifted up? Hmm? Mm -hmm. yeah. What's the final act of God's lifting up? Resurrection. Here it is, already, in a kind of veiled way, in this little encounter with this old woman. She is being raised. So you have to look for the symbolic meanings. You have to, you have to think about them. You've got to wonder about them. And they aren't always very clear. The fever leaves her. And then what happens? And, and this is why we have to pay such close attention to the detail in this gospel. What happens next? Is it, you can miss this. In fact, I'm sure I missed it a thousand times in reading it. What happens? Yes, what's the word here? Sir. This is the first disclosure of Jesus' definition of what discipleship is about. Service. Radical service. And, and more radical than that, in a sense, is the fact that who is the one doing the serving here? And this can escape us in our modern world, but in that ancient world, this was a jarring statement. Who He's just called four disciples. They follow. But who is the first one who serves? A woman. In the ancient world, that was to be noted. Because 
we will see that Jesus calls women into his presence to be his disciples. And in fact, they are the last ones to desert him, if indeed they do desert him at all. And that's a question that remains open at the end of the gospel. But she serves them. She becomes here a model of servanthood. And the implication for us, reading this text, it seems to me, is that if we have been lifted up, resurrected, he says the gospel, the kingdom is here at hand now. It is happening. It's not some future event only. It is now. If we are being resurrected, what happens as a consequence of, of our resurrection? And this is tied to our baptism. The two merge into primary symbols of transformation. Baptism and resurrection. In the middle of them is death. We'll get to that. But what happens as a consequence of being raised? What do we do? We become servants. A friend of mine wrote me an email this week. We had had a previous discussion. He said, we Christians are meant to be called to major in the minor things. It's a play on words and had to do with sports analogy. Major league, you know, minor league. We Christians are called to major in the minor things. And in this case, we see Simon's mother-in-law majoring in the not-so-minor thing of becoming a servant. It seems minor, but the reality is it's much more powerful than we have even begun to, to know yet. Now, we're, we're going to leapfrog through here, and it's just about, I'm gonna, can we take five more minutes? Is that too much or too little, or do we need to stop? I can stop now if you, five more? Okay. Unless there's an objection. If you need to go, go ahead. Um, we have some healings taking place uh, in this gospel, and some. Uh, the first one, uh, the next one that I want to note is in chapter one, the healing of the leper, which sets the stage for another theme that emerges in this gospel, and that is that Jesus spends most of his time affiliating with the outcasts of society. As you know, or I'm sure you have heard, a leper, especially in that period of time, in that culture, was about as much of an outcast as there could be. Why? What was the dangerous thing about lepers? Hmm? They what? Contagious. Yeah. Leprosy was considered to be contagious. Not only that, but it had come to symbolize everything unclean, ritually speaking, in terms of purification laws of Israel and Judaism. And it, it was also, the leper was a symbol of all of those outside the community of the righteous. And so he's presented here in front of Jesus. And he's, he's also presented as beseeching Jesus and kneeling before him, which suggests what, besides just the fact of kneeling? Again, that's, kneeling has implications. Um, maybe he was so weak he fell to his knees, but more than likely it's something else. What is this? He's in the posture of begging, did you say praying? Yeah. This is a posture of reverence, perhaps, but it is also one in which he is going, from which he's going to implore Jesus to do something for him. And um, let's just notice the next sentence, and then we're going to stop with this, kind of leave this hovering. It's, how does your translation read, verse 41, the first three, four words? 
Moved with pity. Anything different? Filled with compassion. There's a word here in Greek, which has several meanings. One of which, in a primary sense of which, it dis- it, in fact, I think it, it, most scholars will agree that it, it's the one nuance that's left out of the translation, and we know that because in Matthew and Mark, they leave it out. I'm sorry, not Mark. Matthew and Luke leave it out. And it's a reference to an attitude that Jesus has at this point that could be pity and compassion because the word is used that way, but there's also a flip side to the word and it is more correctly translated indignation. Angry angry indignation. And sometimes your compassion, if you think about it, can lead you to angry indignation when you see what is happening to people. This this is the first indication in this gospel that Jesus is deeply moved by what is presented in front of him and that he's moved to the point of anger. And he's going to stretch his hand out and touch this leper, and he does, and he says, I will, and he says, be clean to this leper. Now, do you know what the consequence of that is for Jesus? Imagine it for a minute. What is the consequence for Jesus for having reached out and touched this leper? He has become unclean. He is now contagious, potentially. He has crossed the barrier between the righteous and the unrighteous, the clean and the unclean. He has become one of them. And he, therefore, has placed himself in serious jeopardy. And on that note, we'll pick up next week.